Hello, Common Ground, as well as to anyone else joining us in the city of Cape Town or wherever you are in the globe. My name is Luke, and I want to start by saying Happy Easter. I live in Cape Town, and it's a real privilege to be able to share a message with you wherever you are in your own home right now. Uh, The Pope said to us earlier this week, I think it was, that Easter may have been canceled, but not the resurrection. And that's why we gather today, because we want to look at and understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ and understand what it means for our lives. Uh, I, I read somewhere recently, there are two types of people. I wonder where you would fit in today with regards to these uh, little pictures. Take a look with me. There's two types of people in the world. Firstly, there's morning people and there's not so morning people. And uh, you know where you, where you lie on that one. There's no, um, there's no debate there. Um, how about this? Do you put a bookmark in the book or do you fold the corner of your book? And, and if you're in this camp over here, this would be unthinkable for you, I'm sure. But what about the big issue of chocolate? Now, this sort of captures it, but I think if you want to understand how people are separated on the issue of chocolate, that this doesn't quite do justice. Either you are the kind of person who can take a block, whether you bite it like that or like that, and then fold up the wrapper and put it away in the cupboard. That's one type. Or you're the other person who thinks that's unthinkable. Once you break that seal, that slab must go. Uh, I wonder where you find yourself. One last one today. Uh, You can clear your inbox and all your alerts or not. I was once in a congregation leaders meeting and, and the one congregation leader was on my left. In fact, I'll give you his name. It was Ryan. And Ryan told us that uh, super efficient Ryan, he he was gonna try and zero his inbox. He loved to keep his inbox at zero. But there was another congregation leader on my right who will remain unnamed, who said, well, he was trying to reach 10,000. And so it depends which one you find yourself. There's two kinds of people. Well, there's two kinds of people when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus as well. It was Josh McDowell who said this, after more than 700 hours of studying the subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. The resurrection of Jesus divides the world into two kinds of people. Did Jesus rise from the grave or not? Today, we're gonna be talking about this resurrection and we're gonna be talking about the difference that it makes in our lives. We're working through a chapter of the Bible called 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's a long chunk of scripture and we're not gonna read it through systematically together as much as we're gonna try and look at this text under these lenses. We're gonna look at a great question that I think every human being needs to settle. A great question we must all settle. We're gonna look at a powerful truth that changes everything. And then lastly, we're gonna look at how can we live as Christ followers in light of this truth? So let's jump in together. A great question that we must all settle. Let's read from verse 12 to verse 14 together. Paul says this, Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, but tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then, and he continues, and we'll pick up with that later. But did you catch that great question that every human being needs to answer? Is there life after death? 
Is there life after this life? And Paul attaches a second question to this question. He says, well, if there's no life after death, then there's no resurrection either. He's got a reasonable way of thinking through this, this question. He approaches it logically. It's if this then this, and if not this, then not this, and not this. This is, this is his way of thinking reasonably through this. He's, it's not the, the ramblings of a crazy person. He's thinking logically. He's building a, an, an intelligent, a rational, a logical argument to this, uh, to this vitally important question. Is there life after death? And did Jesus, in fact, raise, or was he raised from the dead? Friends, I doubt whether there is a more important question in all of life to answer. I wanna look at that today. Let's follow Paul's train of thought as, as he addresses this uh, vitally important question for us. Firstly, Paul gives us two answers to this. He gives us, first of all, a historical answer. He gives us historical evidence. And then secondly, he gives us a philosophical argument as well. Let's track together as he first goes through the historical evidence of the resurrection. In verse five, we read together. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his own followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been untimely born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Now, Paul reminds us that Jesus was seen by Peter. Jesus was seen by the other apostles as well. But then there's this remarkable uh, fact that he slips in here. He says, he appeared to more than 500 people at once. Now, 500, this is remarkable for a few reasons. Number one, 500 is a big number. It's way too many to have been a kind of group hallucination. And so that rules out that. But 500 is also way too many to be a hoax. Someone would have ratted it out eventually, right? Especially under the kind of pressure that they would have been in to cave. Someone would have caved, especially under threat of their lives. But the thing is, no one ever did. Chuck Colson, in speaking of the Watergate scandal in America, I think it was during Nixon's administration, he said this after Watergate. I know the resurrection is testified. Sorry, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years, absolutely impossible. And what gives this statement even more credibility is that when Paul wrote it, you see, most scholars agree uh, to, to the scholar that this letter was written between AD 53 and AD 56. That's within just over 20 years of the actual resurrection of Jesus. Paul even says, most of whom are still alive today. It's the equivalent of writing about something that happened 20 years ago. Think with me of uh, 1994 when, when South Africa had our first democratic elections. Can you remember, maybe you were there, the longest queues we'd ever seen. A lot of uncertainty about what would happen and what the outcome was gonna be and what it would mean for our nation. 
I'm sure many of you, as you watch this, many of you wouldn't remember that. Maybe you, you weren't born yet. Maybe you don't remember it. But you don't need Google to know that it happened. You can simply go and ask someone who was there. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. In the resurrection, we have witnesses who are still alive who you can go and ask. In fact, in the instance of the resurrection, many of these witnesses had a faithful standing by this truth with their very lives. And so this is why this witness of the early believers had such traction in their culture because these men and women stood by what they saw. They had seen something that was so real, that was so true, that so profoundly impacted who they were that they could not, even in the face of torture and prison and, and ultimately even death, they could not recant on what they had seen. Paul gives us, first of all, historical evidence for this resurrection. But then he builds a bit of a philosophical argument, which I'm gonna try and translate into, uh, from Corinth into Cape Town today. He asks us, well, what do we lose if there's a, no resurrection? And the first thing he says is, you lose a sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, the reason to sacrifice for something other than or someone other than yourself. In verse 30 and verse, to verse 32, we read together, why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? Paul tells us of the hardships that he has to endure. He talks about fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it sounds terrible. Here's a guy who, who constantly has to make sacrifices, who's under threat of his life all the time. And he says he does so because of the meaning and the purpose that he knows awaits, that, that what he does in this life um, translates to in the life to come. It's this life to come and how that brings meaning and purpose to the sacrifices we make in the here and now especially when we sacrifice in this life for others. I saw this recently. I had the real privilege. My wife and I, Laura and I went to Israel and uh, we got to go and see many of the places where Jesus lived and ministered and many of the, the sites and, the, and the, the background of the biblical places. And one place in particular grabbed me. It was a place called Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is named Caesarea after Caesar. You see, what's unique about Caesarea is it's a, a Roman city that's built into a Jewish world. And so you've got the coming together of these two cultures. On the one hand, the Roman culture, which had a belief, they, they had gods, but their gods were great and they were mighty, but they weren't good and holy. And so the way the Romans interacted with their gods was, was uh, you just kind of wanted to stay out of their way, to, to float under the radar because they couldn't be trusted. And so Romans, had, they had no concept of the afterlife. And so they built these great, grand, radical cities with um, all centered around pleasure and in the moment. They would build great Roman baths, these amazing amphitheaters with great uh, theater productions and these great uh, stadiums where they would have chariot races. But they, their cities were great, they were opulent, they were lavish, but they were all centered around right now in this life. And, and you had this Roman world built into this Jewish world which was this world of simple people living in simple homes, uh, a, a, a normal existence, if you will. 
many times in history, they would, they would, you would see one generation that would be willing to sacrifice in order to set up another. And this was rooted in their understanding of a God who is holy and a God who is good. And so they were able to sacrifice in this life now because they knew of the life to come. And so this, this worldview of meaning and purpose that comes through life after death. But Paul says also, you'd lose a sense of ultimate justice and even morality with it. In verse 32, he says, if there's no resurrection, well then let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, he says, if there's no life after death, we should, we should just be doing whatever our appetites so desire, whatever we crave. If there's no justice that awaits us on the other side of death, then just do whatever you feel and like now. You do you and I do me because it doesn't matter anyway. Lastly, he, he says in verse 19 and 29, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? Paul says, well, uh, if there's no such thing as the resurrection, if death is just the end and then it's just game over and all that matters is the here and now, then there's no such thing as a soul. We lose the soul. Then we're just, we're just animals with a heightened ability to reason, but nothing more. There's no part of our being that's more than the physical. I, I put to you though, as you sit there in your lounge, as you watch from your bedroom, intuitively I think as human beings, we know that there's, there's more to being human than just that which is physical. David Brooks speaking recently at a TED talk, he said this, he says, now I don't ask you to believe in a God, but I do ask you to believe that there is a piece of you that has no shape, size, color, or weight, but that gives you infinite dignity and value. And rich and successful people don't have more of this than poor or less successful people. Slavery is wrong because it's, a, it's an obliteration of another person's soul. Violence and violent crimes, crimes of hate are wrong because, they, because they're, they're rooted in the sense of they cut against the sacredness of what it is to be human beings. We're more than just evolutionary biology. We are creatures with souls. Wherever you're sitting, if you're privileged and lucky enough to be sitting next to someone, the person you're sitting next to is so much more than just flesh with an ability to reason. They're sacred. Eternity has been put into their hearts. We're beings with souls and spirits. And, and Paul, Paul puts to us, this is the human experience. You are more than just your biology. He gives us both a historical argument. He gives us a philosophical argument. But next he shows us just how important and just how powerful the truth of the resurrection is, as this is a powerful truth that changes everything. Let's read together from verse 20 now. Verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. 
But there is, uh, there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. You see, Paul says to us two things here. There's two concurrent thoughts that run through this text we've just read together. The first one is that Jesus is the first of a great harvest of many who will come after him. We're not really an agricultural society anymore, so this metaphor is kind of lost on us. But the old concept of first fruits is what Paul is speaking about here. He's speaking about Jesus being the kind of the first fruit on the tree that is a promise of a harvest of other fruit who will come after him. He's saying in a sense, he's saying Jesus is the lightning. You know when that thunderstorm comes through and it's gloomy and it's dark and that flash of lightning comes? immediately everything goes quiet and, and you probably like me, you start to count the seconds, right? You're counting because you know what's coming next. Jesus is the lightning, but you, you know after the lightning, it, then you wait and then comes the thunder. And what Paul is saying is saying Christ is the lightning and that's how we know because Jesus came, we know that the thunder will be coming. Therein is our confidence as Christ followers. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the lightning that lets us know that ultimately our resurrection in Christ is coming because we've seen the lightning and now we wait for the thunder in Christ. But then he gives us another one. He gives us a picture of two prototypes. He goes, the, the, the picture of Adam is the first prototype and then Christ as a second prototype. And he says, we are all created in Adam. All human beings are made in the image of God. That's what it means to be created in Adam. We're all in Adam. We're made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means that we're unlike any of the other creatures in the world, unlike the flowers, unlike the birds, the bees, the, the penguins, etc., etc. To be human is to be something totally different because we're in the image of God. What does it mean? It means we have a soul. A human being has a soul. We have a spirit. We are created with eternity within us, it's, which is why human beings ask, why is this happening? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Something about being human craves knowing where we fit in, in this world and in relation to it. To be human is to, to be one who has a soul, who has a spirit. We're like God. We're in the image of God, which means we resemble God, if you will. There's a resemblance in us to God, which means that we, we carry an appreciation of beauty, a, a sense of justice. No matter, no matter how far you go into the deepest jungle, the furthest forest, and you find a tribe hidden away there, untouched by civilization, you will find in that tribe, somehow there is an appreciation of beauty. There is a, there is a sense, a concept of justice that, that, that governs how this, this tribe lives. Why? Because we're in the image of God. We carry with us this appreciation of beauty, this, this concept of justice, this, this craving for relationship to be human is to need relationship it's it's why this lockdown and isolation impacts us as human beings at a deeper level than just biology because to be human is to be in the image of God we crave we need fundamental to being human we need relationship in Adam we're in the image of God we carry a spirit. We, we resemble him in likeness as well. It's why corona is not just, oh, well, survival of the fittest. But no, it cuts us deeply because these are human beings. These are sacred creatures. Uh, it, it cuts with a justice uh, 
in, in our understanding of being human. All of this points back to the image of God in which we were created in because we were created in Adam. One woman, she said it like this when she held her newly born daughter in her hands. She said, I realized when I looked at her that I loved her so much more than evolution required. That there's, that there's something so deep in the core of a human being. We're in the image of God. We're in Adam. We carry a soul. We carry a spirit. Wherever you're watching this from, you are sacred because you carry a spirit. You're in the image of God. But, but what, it, what else it means to be in Adam as well means we're not just in the image of God, but we're also then in the fall. The fall came into our world and came into our humanness through Adam as well. Through Adam, sin and death came into our world. What this teaches us is that our world is broken. That, that there's, there's things in our world like sin, like death, like sickness, like suffering, like conflict. It's why we look at our world like a, John Lennox says, like a, like a ruined cathedral. There's beauty everywhere, but this beauty has been marred. It's been malformed. It's been distorted. It's broken and it's sick. And if we're honest about sin, sin is not just out there in our world. But sin is in here in our humanness as well. You and I are not without sin's influence on our souls as well. I am, I am so aware. I'm so aware of the man, of the, the husband, of the father that I long to be. And the husband and father and man that I am. And the gap between these two. Evil uh, and sin impact our souls as individuals too. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the book, uh, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Alexander, Sol Alexander Solzhenitsyn saw more evil than most of us and suffering in his life. He was imprisoned in the, in the gulag as well. And this is what he had to write. He said this, we would love to believe, would we not, that there is a line separating those of us who are good from the rest of the bad apples. But actually, the line between good and evil runs down the center of every human heart. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own soul? It's why our human experience is one where we long to be more. I long to be a better person. I long to be a better husband and father, but I constantly trip up. It's why, because I'm in Adam, in the, in the image of God, that's why I long to be more. But at the same sense, I'm fallen. It's why I don't quite make it. It's why I long to have a six pack. But I, actually, but, but I never quite get there, right? Uh, I long to be more, but I never quite make it because I'm in the image of God, I long to be more. But sin impacts me and so I never quite make it there. And so we're all in Adam, but Paul says, but some of us are in Christ. There is another prototype. Paul says in Christ, we have a brand new prototype that though, though death and sin came into the world through one prototype, so new life and resurrection life comes through another prototype in Jesus. As, as death came in here, so eternal life comes in here in Jesus. And, and so we as Christ followers, we use Jesus' words here, have been born again which means your prototype is now no longer Adam. You're now in Christ. Andrew Wilson gives us such a fantastic picture of what this means. He says, imagine, well, I'm saying to you, imagine right now I was to have a heart attack, that my heart was to stop beating, that's what a heart attack is, and I was to collapse here and I was to die. What would happen to my foot? Well, my, my foot would die as well because it's in me. 
But then just imagine the paramedics would have come here and they would have bring those special shocking paddles and they would have put them on me and they would have shocked me once and shocked me twice. And after the third shock, boom, my heart started beating again. What would happen then to my foot? Well, my foot would say, I'm alive, not because of anything I've done, but because I'm in Luke. It's because I'm in Luke that I have been brought back to life. And and what Paul is saying, that you've been taken out of death in Adam and you've been put into Jesus. So in Jesus's resurrection and coming back to life, so you and I come back to life. We come back into relationship with God. We come back into eternity with Him. We come back into a journey whereby day by day, we're becoming more like Jesus as the resurrection of Jesus and the life that it brings begins to permeate all of who we are. It's a truth so powerful that it changes everything. But what does this mean for our lives right now? What did it mean for them in Corinth in AD 53? And what does it mean for us in Corona in 2020? Number one, I'm gonna give us four things. First one is for those of us who are not yet Christ followers, but you're you're looking into what it looks like to follow Jesus. And then the final three, for those of us who are believers. Number one, I wanna say that this resurrection is a truth to be believed upon. It's a truth to be believed upon. Verse three says, this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, I passed on to you what was of most importance. And what had also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. This is a truth to be believed. I was in Adam, but now I'm in Christ because I've been born again by putting my belief and my trust in him. You say this, this is all you do. You say, Jesus, I don't have all the answers. If I'm honest with you, there's loads of questions I still carry in my life today. I don't have all the answers, but, but I understand that there is more to my humanity than just my flesh and my biology. There is much that I long for that I cannot attain on my own. And Jesus, I understand I was in Adam, but Jesus, I want that life. Can you bring it to me, please? Will you transfer me from Adam into you, Christ? Will you come and do that? It's a simple prayer. That's what we do. We believe and we reckon that to be true in and through our lives. Perhaps you're not there yet though. This is an incredible time. It's a wonderful opportunity to seek God, to ask the big questions of life. This coming week, we're gonna be launching really soon uh, online Alpha. Alpha is simply It's an opportunity to ask the big questions of life. It's a journey into into faith and discovering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what that means for your life. Why not now in this time of, of lockdown when we've got more time, especially in our evenings than we've ever had before, why not sign up now? and do Alpha from the safety of your own home as you get a safe place to ask these questions and discover more of who Jesus is. Now, what if you're a Christ follower? What difference does the truth of the resurrection make to your life and my life in Corona 2020 right now? You see, this chapter was written to a church in crisis. They were in a moral crisis. We are in a, in a crisis of plague, if you will. Uh, Paul wrote this to them in order that they would be able to anchor their behavior in the truth of the resurrection. In the midst of the crisis, this is how we behave. This is how we respond because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so too we in Corona 2020 as Christ followers, we look to to the resurrection to see how do we navigate this crisis? What does it mean for our lives? So let's see where Paul lands in verse 58 together. 
He says, so my dear brothers and sisters, I love the gentleness that he speaks to us with. Be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. To be a Christ follower in this moment is not just a matter of positive thinking. It's a matter of eschatological thinking. As we start to view the seasons and the events of our lives in light of the resurrection and ultimate triumph of a risen Christ. So because of the resurrection, as Christ followers, we can be strong, we can be resolute, and we can be fearless in the face of Corona. Though when we look ahead, there's lots of uncertainty. Hey man, I was just looking through some of my own thoughts here, asking questions like, what will we do? How long will this go on for? How much is my budget gonna need to change over the coming months? How bad will this sickness be? How many people I know and love will contract this sickness and what will it mean for their lives? Honestly, I feel these things and these questions unsettle me deeply too. For the first time, I think as human beings, we're aware the first time in a long time of just how out of control of our own destinies we truly are. The frailty of the substance of the things that we've rested our security and our confidence has been exposed and we're kind of reaching out for new, new rocks to, to put ourselves on, new solidity to build our lives on. Today, we remember the solidity of the resurrection of Jesus. In uncertain times, what we, what we are certain of is that the same power that raised Christ from the, from the grave is still at work, at work today in your life and at my life to complete that which Christ has begun in us. What, what, that, what that means is there's no challenge there's no hardship. There's no earthly prospect that corona or anything else can bring your way and bring my way that could, that could carry the ultimate power of devastation and despair. Why? Because he's alive and because you're in him. In fact, when Paul wrote to the church in Rome in the face of their hardships, this is what Paul had to say to them in Romans 8 from verse 34. He said, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Do you know where Jesus is right now? Jesus, having won the victory over sin and death, now from heaven is praying and interceding for us as his, as his believers. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship or persecution, famine, I suppose we could put plague in there as well, or nakedness or danger or sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, Christ follower. Come what may, Jesus has been raised to life and you are in him. Therein is our confidence. 
Christ follows, because Jesus is alive and because you are in him, in Corona 2020, we can work for God in the service of others. Every act of selflessness done in this life to serve others matters. It matters because this life is not the end. Every, every sacrifice of service, of mission, of loving our neighbor, it, it echoes through the annals of eternity. And so in the coming weeks, in the coming months, let's be the people who, because Jesus is alive and because we are in him and therein is our confidence and we know that what we do this side of heaven matters that side too let's be the people who look out for our look out for our neighbors who who seek to serve others who work for God in sacrificing for others and lastly because of the resurrection of Christ we live full of hope we are a people full of hope because we know how the story ends we know that this too will pass and we know how the story ends It's a little bit like this. It's like you're watching, you've watched a sports game. You've watched the game and you know your team wins in the end, right? And now during lockdown, there's no more sport on TV. And so maybe you, like admittedly me, are watching the old games again. And, And you're watching the game that's already been played. You know how the story ends. And so in that game, as you watch it now, there are moments where there's nail biting moments. There's moments where it looks bleak. How are they gonna do it? but you experience those moments with a sense of peace because you know where the story is going. You know ultimately where it's gonna end up. To be a Christ follower facing corona in 2020 means, yes, there are genuine low moments. Yes, it is tough. Yes, we feel the hardship, but we we do not feel it ultimately. We face these moments with a genuine sense of peace because we know Jesus is alive and we are in him. And ultimately his victory is being and will be worked out in our world. And so we face these moments, but we do so with a sense of ultimate immovable peace that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. This Easter, peace be with you wherever you are. Now let's, let's do something together. Let's, uh, let's move towards the communion table. This is a moment where Christ literally meets us. Wherever you are, wherever you are in the city, in your bedroom, uh, in your lounge, uh, trust that you're ready and you're prepared for this. Uh, let me grab mine over here. Um, I don't know what you've got. There's uh, not much wine around at the moment. And so we've got bread and we've got, uh, I think, apple juice. Whatever you've got on hand, that's okay. This is not something you're gonna miss out on on a technicality. There's two elements of grace I want to speak to as we take communion in our home. I wanna point you to two and I'm gonna give you a private moment as we sing a song to do just that. But there's two moments of grace that I want to say that Christ wants to give us today. The first one is a moment of saving grace. Saving grace is the moment where you you shift your weight, you shift your trust from from belief in self, life in Adam, to belief in Jesus in the second prototype as new life comes to Christ. If that's you, there's a simple prayer you get to pray as as you take your bread and as you take your grape juice, you say, Jesus, thank you for your body that was broken for me. Thank you for your blood that was shed for me. Jesus, the new life that you bring, would you you bring that in me? 
I cannot make it myself. I need you to do it. And, and you ask Jesus to forgive you and you ask Jesus to come and take up residency within you and bring that new life in you. There's saving grace. There's also sustaining grace. The reason Jesus chose a meal, the reason Jesus chose bread and wine was, was he knew his disciples needed to eat. They needed to drink in order to be nourished, in order to receive the nutrients they needed to do life the way he had called them to do it. And so when we do this today, when we, when we eat of the bread and when we drink of the, the, the grape juice, the wine, what we're doing is we're saying, Jesus, would you nourish my soul? I need you. In Corona 2020, in Cape Town, we need you indefinitely, Jesus. But right now in this moment, would you meet me in my home and would you nourish my very soul? I need you, Christ. And that's what he promises to do. And so we're gonna get the band to lead us in song now. And I'm gonna give you a little bit of private time in a second. I'd just love to pray for you as we go there together. Can I pray for us as we close our eyes? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Adam is not the full stop at the end of our story, but that Jesus, you came from outside as a new prototype and that in you, we can be born again and that in you, we can experience new resurrection life, that we can know with confidence, as confident as we are, you with the lightning, that you are bringing us through as the thunder too. God, I pray for every family, for every individual, for every Christ follower as they sit in their home now and we reach out to you, Jesus. Would you meet us where we are at with your presence? Would you come and sustain us for those who today are saying, I wanna be out of Adam and into Christ. Would you come and save them to Jesus? Amen. Perhaps for you, uh, you're not ready yet to make that decision. This is an opportunity to sit in your home and just reflect on what we've heard today of who Jesus is and what he's done. And I trust that God would meet you all in your homes today. Amen.